Stress, anxiety, and depression are skyrocketing among children and teens. And Cook Children's Healthcare System is on a mission to bring these topics into the light. I'm Winnie King. And I'm Dr. Kristen Perch. If you have kiddos in the room, now is the time to put on those headphones. Some of the topics we'll be discussing will not be suited for young ears. This is Raising Joy. Hi, and welcome back to Raising Joy. My name is Kristen Perch, and I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist at Cook Children's Hospital in Fort Worth, Texas. And ordinarily, this is where my beautiful, fantastic, wonderful, effervescent, skilled co-host jumps in and introduces herself. However, she is not here today. So Miss Winnie is in uh, Florida, hopefully safe from a hurricane. As far as I know, everything's okay. Um, And so it'll be just me flying solo. So we know that Winnie is going to come back to us safe and sound, and she'll be back on the podcast ASAP. So we'll just hop into our guest because it's really hard to make conversation with yourself. So <laughs> we have a great guest today. Her name is Miss Callie Crow, and she is a paramedic who lost her son to fentanyl. His name is Drew. But instead of allowing this tragedy to destroy her, she made it her mission to save lives. Welcome to Raising Joy. Hi. So glad to be here. Thank you so much for coming, especially today on this rainy day. Like hey. the rain came with us. So Miss Callie came in with a beautiful set of boots, and it reminded me that I also need to find a pair of boots, one, because I'm a native Texan and I just need some, but also because I'm going to be able to see um, the patron saint of Texas, George Strait, in concert <laughs> next weekend. And so I'm really excited about that, um, but I can't do that cowboy boots, cowgirl boots. I, I don't know. Is there a difference? I guess. The know. boots. I can't do boots. without boots, right? I, I just can't. So you bring boots with you everywhere you go, and they're beautiful. So what? What is? what's the story with the boots? So um, first of all, you're very generous with the word beautiful. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, I love them dearly uh, because they are my son Drew's boots. Okay. But they are far from beautiful. Let's call them rustic. They're, yes, but they're... They they do have a, they have a lot of character, but I like that. That makes them interesting, right? You're you're so right. Yeah, like, he loved them, and and they are very well loved. Yes, but yeah. So I bring Drew's boots with me anytime I'm doing anything associated with Drew's Twenty Seven Chains, which is my nonprofit, and um, it just gives me a sense of him being here with me. And I always get those really strange looks. Not only <laughs> are they huge, so they're I think they're like a thirteen or a fourteen, and so people like. Is she going to wear those? Why isn't she wearing those? So yeah, and they're they're definitely a conversation starter, and I love to talk about him. So that's awesome. Well, tell us about Drew. Like, who was he? Yeah, yeah. I'd love to tell you about Drew. So Drew was 27 years old when he died. He was a political journalism student at the University of North Texas. So um, he wasn't exactly quiet person, right? Okay. Um, he wasn't overly loud because he had this really deep, like very white voice. <laughs> and so it didn't take a whole lot for people to like perk up and listen to him. Yeah. And he was also very like funny, but in a very corny way. You know okay. what I mean? I so, love the dad jokes. Right. Like it's not actually funny, but you're laughing because it's not actually funny. Um, and the fact that he thinks it's funny. Yeah. It so, helps the whole. Right. Yes. Um, but he was a very, although he was very towering in, you know, in stature, he was very sweet. And, um, and I always talk about his skin and people get really weird about that. 
Tell but us about I it. Have, Let's hear it. I, <laughs> I have this really funny story when okay. he was like four years old. So Drew is biracial and I'm very Irish looking. Okay. And so um, he, I, when he would take a bath, he would sit in the bathtub and I would sit next to him and, and play with the toys and just make sure he was good. And he stopped and he said, mom, why do people always ask me what color I am? Okay. Right. So I think he was referring mostly to kids. Sure. Right? Yeah, you know, yeah. just being curious. Yeah. And I said, mm, I don't know. Um, what do you tell them? And he says, mm, as he looks down at his arm, mm, like milk chocolate. I love that. Yeah. I love kids. Yeah. And, and so he's, he was very smooth, like milk chocolate. And so that was sort of a running joke with us. That's amazing. He didn't really like it as he got older, but. That's- <laughs> but you like to remind him yes, of that nickname absolutely. that like stuck around. Yes. But he was married. Okay. Um, he um, lived here in the, in the Metroplex. He um, was just a, um, a character, but he was also addicted to opioids for about 10 years. Wow. So that's a long time when you're 27 years old. Right. Um, and so it was, it was quite a struggle for him. Okay. Um, the last 10 years of his life, I was not pleasant for him or me or my other children. Okay. So um, it, was a long, it was a long 10 years that sort of morphed him into a different person, if you will. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, I would get little glimpses of him that would warm my mama heart. Yep. Um, but... Not all the time. Okay. And that's really hard. I, I can only, I can't imagine watching your kiddo struggle in that way. Right. And to see the devastating effects that an addiction takes on a person's like personality and motivation and like what they're able to do and spend time with their face, like all of those things and the way it just like changes their personality, you know. And everything. Yeah. And it was especially hard for us. I shouldn't speak for my, my kiddos, but for me especially, I've never done a drug in my life never even smoked pot before. I don't drink. I don't smoke. And I was, you know, although I've been a paramedic for over 20 years and been, you know, seen that kind of world a right, lot, right, know, right, right. Um, whether it be mental health issues or um, addiction or how addiction affects the body, whether that be alcoholism or, right. or drugs of some sort, I was very exposed to those kind of things. But yet there was a big wall because I didn't, quite understand and and I was one of those people that had in my mind you know addiction is something that you can control okay um addiction is something that is very easily cured okay addiction is something that you know kind of is your own fault okay right and so that was kind of my mentality just to give you an idea sure and honestly I didn't really recognize that until after Drew died from addiction okay um you know, I would look at him, by the way, drug use started with him at 14. Wow. That is very young. That is young. Did it start with opioids or did it start with something um, else? I don't, yes, I think so generally. Um, he was actually given drugs by a family friend. Okay. And that's kind of what started it. Okay. Um, this was somebody that we were looking for to mentor Drew. Okay. And I sort of took advantage of that situation. Like an older mm-hmm. person? Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So that has been my biggest, not my biggest struggle. One of my biggest struggles is dealing with the guilt associated with the exposure to that type of person, if you will, even though 
they did they don't fit. Well, let me back mm-hmm. up. When you say addict, mm-hmm. we have this tendency mm-hmm. um, to fall into the stereotypical what an addict looks like, who an addict is, mm-hmm. what their background is. Yep. And and I was definitely guilty of that, um, which has helped me now in what I do and helping other people because it's the stigma that's associated with yes. addiction that is one of the biggest obstacles. And so, you know, I looked at this person as Drew's mentor. You know, I think to give myself a little bit of credit, I looked for those what I believed would be your typical stereotypical signs of right someone that would use drugs. Right. And that person did not fit this. Right. So I felt, oh, it's safe. Right. Right. So it was just a and it can be addiction can be very subtle. You oh, may very. not know. I'm a psychiatrist and have been around friends with substance use disorders and had no idea until years after the fact. And I'm a psychiatrist. Right. And, and so you, it's, it's not like anyone comes with a, you know, like a neon sign above their head saying, you know, this person is addicted to alcohol or, you know, like, oh yeah. It, they don't come with warning signs. No, not at all. And, and I think it's nice to see we're getting away from that sort of mm-hmm. stigma associated with it and realizing that it's not just this certain demographic. Oh, absolutely. That it, it spans across everyone and no one is safe from it. Absolutely. Um, and, and yeah, you're right. So like most people didn't know about Drew's substance use disorder until he died. I had people at the funeral going, was he in a wreck? They just didn't know. Just had no clue. And, and although it was in my face every day, I, I assumed that other people were aware but he was really good at hiding that. I mean, he was very functional. I mean, he was in school. He was married. He was, you know, mm-hmm. going about his normal daily activities. But that's the biggest part of it is, is that his use wasn't to get high like mo- a lot of people think about drug users. Right. His was about maintenance to be able to function because his body was dependent upon the opioids. I see. And, and that is part of, like, there is a physiologic dependence that comes with opioids and also comes with like benzodiazepines or alcohol, those things, your body, like if you don't take those, if, if you have used those med- medications or substances consistently for a long time and you all of a sudden stop, it can be life-threatening for alcohol and benzodiazepine. So a benzodiazepine is like Ativan, Xanax, like those sorts of things. And these are medications that are prescribed for anxiety sometimes. But sometimes people use them more than they're prescribed and they become dependent on them. And so if you wanted to stop it, you have to go down on the doses of those things very slowly or like it could be life-threatening. And so it sounds like Drew had that that body biologic dependence on the opioids and then – and so he couldn't stop. Yes. Like he couldn't stop without – and it is debilitating. Totally debilitating. So I would watch him even like we would go to dinner. Mm-hmm. And if the if we got there and there was a wait, you know, he he was he couldn't even go with just hours, you know, two hours, hour and a half without having something. And it was just torturous to watch. And I, I mean, it's shaking, sweating, anxiety, oh, like yeah. diarrhea. Di- yeah. I mean, like all, I mean, so it, it is a physiologic, I think like you were saying, like a lot of people think it is just 
the psychological aspect. Like I do right. this to tune out and, you know, so then if, if it's a thought or a mind issue, then I can just stop it. And it's like, there has to be the mind therapy part of it, but also there's a physiologic part that sometimes a lot of people need help with to be able to come off of something that they're dependent right. on. Right. And, and I hate to um, compare this because it's really not comparable, but people that drink coffee, oh, I, yeah. I'm personally addicted to diet drinks. And, you know, so when I start to need one, I start getting a, a headache mm -hmm. or, you know, just have that desire to have one. And I don't, that's only a fraction of yeah. what those people feel. And how horrible to be caught up in something like that, especially if that wasn't your intention. I mean, nobody wakes up and says, hey, I want to be an addict today. Exactly. You know, but most of the time they are in the middle of it, in the depths of it, when they realize where they are. Mm -hmm. And then it's a process of, oh gosh, you know, I don't want to blank. I don't want to lose my family. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want people to judge me. And it's so important to break that down and do away with the judgment mm -hmm. and being able to help someone in that situation. Right. Because if you are, you're, you're not going to be helpful, supportive, and they're never going to get out if they yeah. don't have that support. And the other thing I think that's so hard for families watching their kiddo or watching their loved one struggle is that it's not like if you're able to go to rehab, if you're able to be successful in that situation, it's often not a one-time no. situation that's able to like magically fix this, like, you know, able to fix the substance right. use disorder because it is a, they, most people develop the disorder over time. Right. And you have to, it takes a significant amount of time to build the coping skills and to get the support and to go to therapy and address maybe what was driving some of these things. Um, and so a lot of times there's relapse. And that's really hard, I think, for families to watch. Because like you were saying, I bet you got the glimmers on occasion mm -hmm. and then saw it come back. And that's, I think, even more devastating. Right. And the relapse, I think, is another part of the stigma, too, is that people mm -hmm. go, oh, well, I'm not going to help this person because they're going to do it again. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not always true. We, I mean, there's recovery out there. And that's part of what we do um, is we provide the physical part of um emergency overdoses to where we can get them basically alive again okay to be able to seek help and recovery and hope for the families right because so um so tell me about 27 chains yeah. like so our mission is to well let me back up and say that um where this stemmed from not only was Drew's substance use disorder and his death secondary to fentanyl but the fact that when um 911 was called on the day of his overdose. And by the way, he overdosed four times total in about three years, which is not okay. uncommon in okay. opioid overdoses. Um, so I'd like to touch on that here in just a minute. But um, <clears throat> he, the night of his overdose, an officer, the 911 call came out. Um, it was his wife. She, um, they were at home, um, actually filling out paperwork for the next semester of school. And she was sitting at the desk at the computer. He was laying on the bed behind her and they were talking. And then he stopped talking. Um, and she assumed that he fell asleep. And then she began to hear those very classic signs and symptoms of, a, of an overdose. 
the gurgling sounds, the snoring respirations. Um, she turned around and then she was able to see those signs and symptoms, the, mm-hmm. the pale skin, the sweating, and then he wasn't responsive to her. And so she knew something was wrong, obviously. She calls 911 and she couldn't really you know, talk about what was happening, right? So she was screaming. Because she's traumatized. She's absolutely traumatized. And so they send the cavalry, right? Which is pretty standard. So okay. they're gonna they're gonna send police, fire, and EMS. Okay. Um, and so typically police officers will arrive on scene first, in which they did in Drew's case. Um, when the police officer arrived, Drew was still breathing. Slowly, but still breathing, which would have been optimal time mm-hmm. for naloxone administration, right? So right. the officer had Narcan on his belt, and sad enough, there was also an additional dose that Drew had on his nightstand next to the bed that he was laying on that he received from the University of North Texas during an overdose awareness event. However, he had never discussed the medication with his wife, okay. um, so she had no idea what it was. So within a foot of Drew, two feet, three feet, oh my gosh. there were four doses of a medication that could have saved his life. For whatever reason, the officer did not deploy his Narcan. Okay. And then it was several moments, minutes later that EMS was allowed to, because what the police officer will do is go in, secure the scene, if you will, make sure that it's safe for other personnel. But then it was just... It was several minutes before EMS was allowed to come in. So once EMS got there, Drew was in cardiac arrest. Mm -hmm. So I took that information and I just, you know, I dissected it at first and was very angry about the fact that there was a lack of uh, action on the officer's part. But I've also been on those scenes before. Right. And things don't always go as we want them to go. Right. And we're not there to judge that. Right. Sure. And I at first wanted to believe that the officer, maybe he looked at my son and said, uh, he's just a addict. You know, I'm not going to help him. He'll do it again. Kind of like what we talked about earlier. Right. Um, a lot of officers are taught that the naloxone that they have on their belt is for them. Or for their canine. Oh, wow. Or for their partner. So basically the decision is less left up to them kind of. Um, so basically what I did was take that situation and say, there's a lack of education out there. Right. Right. right? There's a disconnect with um, what this is all about. Yes. Right. Yes. So the stigma, the, you know, and, and we're talking about police officers. We're not talking about medical people. Right. right? Exactly. And so a lot of times we in EMS, and first responders are handed a new piece of equipment and there's not a whole lot of training that goes with it. And and I okay. know that that's kind of hard to digest. I know. I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I'm telling you over the 27 years that I've been in it now, I don't think it's a malicious thing. I think that there are reasons behind it, um, but I don't feel like we get the training. And so what I began to find just weeks after Drew's death was this was a, not a, um, circumstance that circumstance that was unusual this was a common thing with police officers wow and so i went you know who <laughs> what what's happening and so right i dug my heels in and began the training so in my training 
which is primarily to first responders because of that situation. Those are the boots on the ground, the first people there. Not not to mention the fact that my career has been entirely in first responder yes. world. So I'm a peer to them. You know, I have this right. already have this rapport with them. Yes. I speak their language. Right? Exactly. And so I can get up there and tell Drew's story, which gives some substance to it. Yes. And then. Um, well, give, especially as his mother. Right. And then I give the basic training because it's so super simple. So recognizing opioid overdoses, what that looks like if you're not medically trained, um, and then a proper administration of naloxone, whether that be through um, a nasal spray or an injectable, depending on what that department, their needs are. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we also talk about the stigma associated with substance use disorder Mm -hmm. and, you know, what that looks like. And and basically in my presentation, um, you know, I put the faces of my family up there. You know, if, Mm -hmm. if you can't, sometimes it's hard for us, you know, like we see the same person all the time or we, if it's not Mm -hmm. the same person, we see the same situation. And so we become very frustrated and um, not very compassionate, like we're supposed to be. And so I try to reset that a little bit with them and go, you know what, maybe that person that's in front of you, that's given you a hard time, right? Right. That, that is cussing you and you know, making your job difficult, it might be hard to help them. But I beg you to look past that person because there's past the drugs, past the substance and see that they're still human. 100%. And not only that, but they still have a family behind them. And and that's usually where I put up the pictures of my, my kids and my mom. And this is who, these are Drew's faces. Right. And, um, and that's really important, you know, because we have a tendency to become very complacent. So, right. And I I think it's hard, you know, for EMTs or for first responders, I've worked in a psychiatric ER. And so it's, it's really hard because you do, like you're saying, like you see the same people over and over and over again and, um, substance use can make people agitated and you're trying to help them and keep them safe and they're fighting you at every step. And, um, and so I could see why someone would be really frustrated in that situation and become jaded and disengage for like to very much, you know, like to help themselves, right. To keep being able to do their job every day. But in that, it sounds like they're neglecting the humanity of the person. Right. So we don't get to choose, right. Like uh, this person lives or dies because I'm going to need this later for myself, which doesn't make a lot of sense if you know anything about naloxone. It's very easy to get. (laughs) Um, and so, you know, one of the indications to giving naloxone is unresponsiveness. So I'm not sure how that would work, how an officer would give naloxone to himself if he was unresponsive. That's right? a great so, point. Um, but, you know, another part of our mission is just to spread awareness about naloxone, that it's not just for first responders, that it is for anyone that would like it. Yes. So. The Senate Bill 1462, which was um, here in Texas in 2015, allows anyone in the state of Texas to have access and possess naloxone, Mm -hmm. which is a prescription medication, but that means that you can walk into a pharmacy and request it. Mm -hmm. So it's an opioid antagonist, basically blocks the effects of opioids when it's in the system. Mm -hmm. But the very best thing about naloxone is that you can never hurt someone with it. Right. So... If you, let's say you're at a gas station and you find, you go into the restroom and you find someone laying there, you have no idea anything about them, right? Right. 
no family around to tell you what happened, but they're unconscious and they don't look like they're breathing very well. Um, maybe they had a seizure, right? Right. Maybe, maybe they're diabetic. Had, exactly. Right. Like yep. m- there's a lot of different things that could happen, um, could be the reason, but the best thing is, is that you have a tool that you can use, which is yes. naloxone yes. and you can give it to them. And not only will it not hurt them, but there are no repercussions in doing that. So right. the Good Samaritan Law plus in addition to that is in that bill 1462 that covers you civilly and criminally um, for no liabilities, basically. So um, that's a huge thing. You could save someone's life. Yes. You know, without any recourse. Yes. And and like you're saying, like if you administer naloxone, there is no there's no downside. But it can I, I've seen um, ER docs administer naloxone in the emergency room. And literally someone is laying on the stretcher, unresponsive. They administer naloxone and they are up and talking. And if, if it is, you know, an right. opio- if it is an overdose, like that's it, like within minutes. I mean, it is yeah. miraculous. I mean, it, it seems miraculous when you see it. You're like, we call it the Lazarus drug. Yes. Yeah. It's it, it, sitting up. Like, like that's right. my memory is that the person like sat up and was talking. And I mean, like that, like it was incredible. Right. So, and I agree with you. Yeah, it's. So it should feeling. be in your first aid kit. It should yes. be, you know, and I'll hear a lot of, well, I'm not really around that kind of stuff. Well, <laughs> that's really? a whole nother talk show, right? <laughs> but, um, you know, even if it's not within your household or you yep. believe that it's not within your household, Absolutely. that doesn't mean that you are not out in public. And, that's right. And um, I had a girl message me on TikTok the other day who said that she had some, which um, anyone can request it from Drew's 27 Chains. So they basically call, call, text, email, say, hey, would like some, no questions asked, I'll send it to you. Um, I just ask that you promise to get the training, which is super simple. There's videos online. It's not difficult. Um, anyway, she had requested some naloxone from me. I sent it to her. She was in a taxi actually going to her um, weekly therapy. Okay. After she was in recovery. And she's looking down at her phone, texting. All of a sudden, she looks up and she sees the person that um, was pumping gas in front of them. He was laying on the ground. Oh, wow. She gets out. She gets her naloxone. She administers it. Calls 911, which is very important as well. Yes. And within seconds, he starts waking up. And Wow. Yes. So, you know, even though she's a high-risk person. Right. This was not a high-risk situation. This was at the gas station. Right. And <laughs> you, know, you never know. You don't ever know. So, you never know. And with our training, which has been over the last year and a half or so, we've, we've saved 36 lives. Wow. Yes. That's just the ones we know about. That's incredible. Yes. So with if they received our training and received the naloxone from us, we count that as a save. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Like, that's amazing. I'm so proud of you. Yeah. Thank like, you. thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thinking, so a lot of, so I'm a child psychiatrist, so I see a lot of teenagers, a lot of parents of teenagers. What advice would you have for a parent of a teen? So I think it's all about being proactive. Okay. Um, and not reactive. When okay. You're in the middle of it and there's emotions involved, it's very difficult to make a solid choice and decisions um, because there are a lot of emotions that are involved in, in something like this. Sure. Um, and so having a plan in place, it may sound a little crazy, like, but look for resources now. If your child mm-hmm. doesn't have any issues, 
find some resources now, begin looking. And it's gotten a lot better. But I'm telling you, when Drew was 14, it was, I mean, you take them to, to someone and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, we don't really treat kids. Right. Right. And, and I'm like, okay, so where do I take him? There, there aren't. Are, there are very few resources, and unfortunately. So, you know, mm-hmm. even if your child, you know, this is kind of like looking for a pediatrician, right? Like mm-hmm. you, don't, you don't expect your child to be sick, but you want to make sure you have a pediatrician in place. Right. You know, or specialist in place. You know, you, you look ahead. So looking ahead, finding resources, preparing to have and having naloxone in your house, mm-hmm. whether that be for your own child. I know when my kids were young, we had a house full of kids all the time, right? Right. And so you don't really know what's coming in and out. Um, And just having that preparation, finding your resources, having preparation for those circumstances and hoping that they don't happen. Yeah. You kind of mentioned that you felt like kind of the stigma and idea that we have in our mind about what an addict is might have, like you kind of it kind of put blinders on. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you would, that you think parents should be aware of or look out for? I guess one, be aware of their own stigma, right? Like keep in mind, right. Substance abuse comes in all shapes and sizes. Right. Um, I think exposure to talking, I mean, it sounds cheesy and, and standard, but talking with your kids about this. Yes. Um, because you know, not just the substance use disorder, but there's also circumstances in which kids take medications and it's laced with an opioid, um, which we're seeing on the news now. Now, I hate to tell you, but this has been happening. This is not necessarily a, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but the numbers probably are greater, but this has been going on for a while. A very long time. And mm-hmm. so what's happening is that, you know, they may be thinking that they're taking yes. um, a Xanax, right, mm-hmm. or an Adderall mm-hmm. or, you know, even an ibuprofen or Tylenol. Yes. And let's go to the far extreme of like, oh, it's just a THC gummy. Right. Right. And so that also may have fentanyl in it because right. remember that fentanyl is super potent and about five to six grains of sand is equivalent to a two milligram dose of fentanyl, which is a lethal dose. So the people that are making these pills on the streets, not only do these pills look legitimate, okay, I can't tell the difference between them. Right. But they're not doing it in a way to protect anyone. No. Their goal is to make money. Right. So yeah. five to six grains of sand, right? Right. Is a, is a large dose. So putting that into something that the person is unsuspecting of, mm-hmm. you know. Could be deadly could for them. Could be very deadly. Yeah. And so I have, I have stories every day from moms, unfortunately. And one of those stories was her, her kiddo normally took Adderall, didn't take it that day. But his friend had some. And so he, it looked like his normal Adderall. Right. You know, same color, same shape. He trusted this person. He didn't have anything, any reason to think that it was anything different than a normal prescription Adderall. Right. Took it and was dead. Wow. Yes. It's so sad. Yeah. It's just so sad. You know, that wasn't his intention. His intention wasn't drug use. Right. The the conversation needs to be about substance use disorder and for them to understand the long-term effects of that. Right. But also the effects of something as simple as taking something from someone else. 
Right. Because you don't actually know. No, you don't know. What it is. And no one can actually know. Right. So. Like, you don't know until you put it in through, like. Right. Through the toxicology and going through all that yeah. stuff. There's no way to know. There is no way to know. Um, do you have any other messages or anything else? So, I just, you know, I want people to know Drew. And yes. remember him. Because. He sounds like a great. He, he sounds like a lot of fun. He was a lot of fun. And. And I believe in his purpose. I believe in our purpose. And this is the only thing that has brought me any sort of comfort mm -hmm. after the loss of him. Um, and so it helps me to hear these stories from mothers. It hurts and it helps because it gives me the fuel and the motivation to continue to do what I'm doing. Yes. Which is, um, you know, going throughout the state and beyond and teaching and training. Um, but beyond that, you know, giving them a story, giving them a face that, hey, this is real. Right. And watching them see the rawness in my presentations um, and then just being supplied with it, feeling like you have some sort of power. Yes. Um, because it can literally make the difference between someone living and dying. Right. And you have that power to do that and to save a life, which yes. is wonderful. That is wonderful. That is amazing. So if people wanted to find 27 Chains or wanted to partner with you or wanted to support you, how do we find you? So right now on Facebook, Drew's 27 Chains is our Facebook page. You can go there and see all the different um, presentations and trainings that we've done recently. Um, we have a website that's coming up soon. Um, so hold tight on that and watch for the, those announcements. Um, but if you're on the Facebook page, you'll get the notification. Yes. I see. Okay. Perfect. Absolutely. That's amazing. Well, Callie, thank you so much for joining us. So we have a newish segment of the podcast where we talk about something that we're grateful for because we recognize how much gratitude really helps, um, you know, our happiness, our joy, all of these things. So I'll start with something I'm grateful okay. for. Um, I haven't thought about this at all, but <laughs> I am grateful for a person like yourself who has been totally devastated by the loss of your child. I, you know, I'm a psychiatrist. I listen to, I hear a lot of stories, a lot of kids that are suffering and I can get in the ballpark emotionally of most situations. Like I can put myself in their situation. I can kind of feel how they feel. Helps me do my job. I cannot, my brain has an absolute block on a mama losing their baby. Like it, it's just like, nope, you can't deal with that. So whenever I talk to parents who have lost kids, and then somehow have managed to turn that into something to help other people, it, I, there just aren't words. Like I have chills talking about that. Like the resilience, the hope it gives me, um, just turning something absolutely horrendous into something for other people is just the ultimate goal in life. So I, I'm grateful for you. Aww. And I'm thank you for your inspiration. Thank you so much. So, um, what I'm grateful for, which is this is going to sound kind of strange to most people, but I'm actually grateful for Drew and, and the death of Drew. Okay. That places me and him in such a great purpose. Okay. Um, so it kind of sounds funny to think that I am grateful for any sort of death, right? Right. But I watched him suffer for so long mm -hmm. and um, we tried so many different things. And it just wasn't happening. And the fact that 
you know, I knew he was born with a purpose. Yeah. I didn't know what that was. And I would have never imagined that this is the purpose, but it is. And he has helped so many families. Absolutely. Um, have hope. And what a um, sacrifice, right? Yeah. You know, so I'm so grateful for his journey yeah. and his legacy. Yeah. And, you know, we know that he, you know, I know he tried the best he could. Yeah, he, he did. did the, he did the best he could. He tried really hard. He did. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. And because I have to do this, I'm like, I guess I have rituals about these things. So I have to say, so ordinarily Winnie and I rotate. Okay, wait, can I give you a, a job? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, please. So I'll say just breathe. You say open up and then you, we say you matter. All right, here we go. All right. Thank you for listening to Raising Joy. Until next time, just breathe. Open up. You matter. matter.